Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and we are in another week of our Bible reading. And uh, this week, we'll be pushing a little bit more through the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be talking through chapter 5, verse 12, through um, chapter 9, I think verse 31 and 32, when it ends uh, Paul's conversion experience. So that's where we'll be at um, for this week. And so I hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast up to this point. Also, just a reminder, as we did last week, um, our Bible Institute is kind of not relaunching, but starting up again, and it will start up the first week in May. May, I think it's the 4th or the 5th, whatever that Wednesday is. Again, more information will be published about that. And um, uh, Tim is going to be teaching a class called A Survey of Jeremiah, Old Testament Prophet, a good one from 9 to 1030. And then I'll be teaching a class from 1030 to 12 called Old Testament Chronology. And so those two are the two classes that will be offered. All you have to do is contact the church office to sign up, or you can also send an email to myself or to Tim to join the classes. The classes are limited uh, because, again, we're still under restrictions and masks required as well, uh, limited to 15. Uh, So the first 15 that sign up will get you in that class, and that'll be an eight, nine-week class. Um, So we're trying to restart that and get that going and... uh, So you can sign up for that. But today, we're going to get back to the New Testament, um, to the book of Acts. And we're about in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Last time uh, Tim was with me, we talked a little bit about Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas. And um, we're going to kind of bypass that and get right into um, chapter um, uh, or verse 12 of chapter 5. And it kind of starts a new section here. Um, again, chapter 5, verse 12 is, is, is what we call a summary report of what's going on. And the summary report is that the apostles were continuing their ministry. They were continuing their work, um, continuing, it says, to heal people, do many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers were meeting regularly, it says. So things were starting to, um, starting to progress. Crowds came from villages around Jerusalem. The, the uh, sick were being healed. Uh, the lame, even evil spirits, it says, were being cast out. And so kind of a, as a summary statement, and of course, as a result of all this popularity, we know that the religious leaders are not happy and they're not excited about all this popularity. In fact, it says there in chapter 5, verse 17, my translation says, the high priest and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with, and here's your word, jealousy. Yeah, and I, I noticed there you can kind of see three other motives that drove their persecution of the church. They're filled with jealousy, and then in verse 24, it says they were greatly perplexed or confused. They didn't understand what was going on. And then um, in verse 26, it says um, they were afraid. So you you see kind of those three motivators still motivate a lot of the persecution of the church today. Um, There's there's jealousy. Uh, People just don't understand our message sometimes, and they don't understand why we do what we do, and then, then there's fear. Um, so those those three motivations are still still going on today, and, and that when it says they were perplexed in verse twenty four, I think that's interesting. It says my translation says uh, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end, as if they were wondering this is a this is a huge movement. How are we supposed to? stop this or do anything about this or fix it. And of course, that's kind of as it leads into the next thing that they do is they decide uh, to arrest the apostles. Uh, and it says in verse 26 that um, they wanted to do it carefully without, it says, violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. So this movement of Christianity was going well with, with the crowds and people were uh, accepting Christ, getting baptized, and this movement was created. And so they were 
kind of worried that if they upset the people, then there's going to be a riot that comes as a result. But it doesn't stop them because they arrest the two uh, apostles here. Uh, they arrest um, uh, Peter and John as well. And uh, I, I like what Peter says um, when, uh, uh, when, when they're arrested in, in verse 29. Um, he says, we must obey God rather than human authority. And then verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. It says, then God put him in a place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that the people of Israel would represent, or excuse me, would repent of their sins and be forgiven. And he says, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. I mean, what a great testimony to say before these religious leaders, you know, we've been imprisoned and, and Peter's able to speak up as a spokesman for the apostles and say, it's more important for us to follow uh, what God's telling us to do than what um, the rest of the world might be telling us to do. Now, Peter and the apostles know full well that persecution can come, and it, it does come, and it will come. Um, so that's not necessarily for us to say today that, you know, just because your civil authorities may not agree with what the Scripture says, you're to disobey them. That's of your own choice. But if you do know that, there might be consequences. There might be persecution. Of course, we don't have it as much in our culture here as uh, in other countries across the world. Um, so as a result of what's happening here, um, I think the religious leaders get fed up and they're ready just to just kill them. They, they killed Jesus. They thought if we just kill the apostles, then we can end the movement. And, and you know? Peter brings the indictment against these religious leaders. You're the one that killed. He yeah. says, you killed the author yeah, of life. Uh, you, you, you killed him. And then it says in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill yeah. <laughs> the apostles. And it reminds me of what Jesus said and what he predicted um, on the Sermon on the Mount of Olives to the disciples, um, that he, he said, if, if, if they're, if they're going to kill me, what do you think their response to you is going to be? They're going to want to kill you and persecute you just like they would would me and he was Jesus was was predicting that they would be following in his steps and here you see you know, plots already you know rising up these religious leaders now wanting to kill or remove Jesus's apostles and his disciples and and it isn't hard to see that I mean it's right there and of course you know also Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount I mean he's also saying hey look you know not just here but you know, throughout the rest of the history mm -hmm. of the church, it's going to happen. And we see it happening all over the place. Now, there, there's a man here, though, that stands up. He's only mentioned, I think, just in this section in the book of Acts. I don't think he's mentioned anywhere else in the New so. Testament. His name is Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and he was re well respected, it says, by um, everyone, it seems. And I think church history tells us that Paul learned under, or Paul's teacher was Gamaliel. So he kind of was a student of Gamaliel. So Paul would have had an interest, an interest in what's, well, I guess we should say Saul, same name, Saul and Paul. Um, but he had an interest in, in uh, probably what Gamaliel was doing. But Gamaliel basically stands up and he says, listen, guys, if this movement is of God, then there's nothing really we can do to stop it. And, and he gives them two examples there in the text. Um, he lists two, I think they were insurrections or, or, or movements that were brought upon um, early in this, in this first century, and he lists the two, and he says, listen, these two movements, they kind of uh, petered out. They kind of, they, they went out to nothing, okay? And he says, but if this movement is of God, then we're not going to be able to stop it. 
you will not be able to overthrow them. You, he says in verse uh, 39, you may even find yourselves fighting against God. And so they don't want to be accused of fighting against God. And, and ironically, you know, they listen to Gamaliel. That's what kind of stuns me as I read through this. I think, you know, there's a lot of other guys that have stood up and said stuff, uh, you know, even back in the Gospels, and they don't pay attention. They just want to kill. They want to go out and just get rid of, especially when it comes to Jesus. But now they listen to Gamaliel, and they listen to his reason. So he must have been a well-respected person, but he only shows up this one time. It's kind of interesting. And it's interesting to look at his motives. We don't know what his motives were and what whether he became a believer in Jesus or right. not, it, it seems like he's a little skeptical at this point. And he, he's looking at these past instances in the Jewish community where leaders rose up. You can read in, in Jewish history, there were actually leaders that some rose up claiming to be yeah. the Messiah, and they'd gather a little group of followers, and they'd be, you know, he'd, they'd be popular for a few years, and then they would fizzle out. And it, it seems like he's equating, he's, he's thinking Jesus is another one of those people who claim to be the Messiah or claim to be a religious leader, and he's going to go the way, his movement's going to go the way of some of these other movements. Um, but uh, and, and I wonder, if, and I'm going to interrupt, but I wonder if he's thinking, it just, just hit me, I wonder if he's thinking maybe we don't want to have our hands in these people's, the, the, these, uh, the apostles' deaths, like, like Peter was already claiming that they are the ones that killed Jesus, and so maybe he's like, hey, why don't we just keep our hands off of this and just let happen what happens. Yep. Maybe that's what he's. Maybe that's part of his. You know, not trying to. Uh, he's trying to save himself or save himself from being finger pointed out. You're guilty. You're the right. ones that did this. Uh, maybe in that context, I don't know. I was just just thinking through that. But he stumbles on a on a truth. Oh, very, yeah. <laughs> even a blind squirrel can find a nut every once in a while. Yes, yes. And uh, he says, if he it is of God, you, you, no one can stop it. And and yeah, you know, two thousand, almost two thousand years of history is, has proven that it is, it is a movement of God. Uh, and and as a result, the, the the thing here that the text says that the apostles left the high council rejoicing that they had counted that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Do you see that? What it says is they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer like Jesus did. Like, it's almost as if they were saying, we got to feel what it was like to be persecuted like Jesus felt like. It's almost like, 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 like they felt a closer connection to Jesus because how he suffered is the same way that we suffer too. He was persecuted because he was teaching the truth. We are persecuted because we are teaching the truth as well. And so maybe that's a different way to look at suffering today, you know, especially suffering for the cause of Christ, not suffering because you stubbed your big toe or, or, or because you may have thrown your back out, not that kind of suffering, um, but this suffering for the cause of Christ. It's interesting the way they reacted to, and, and when, they, when they were released, they got to get back to their lives. Oftentimes when we are suffering, we feel like we need to back away from some of our responsibilities yeah. toward God, responsibility towards others. Uh, but we see them almost doubling down. Like on they their, leaned into yeah, it almost. They leaned into their engagement with the, with the church. Uh, it says every day they did not, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching um, that Christ is Jesus. Or that yeah, the Christ I mean, is when Jesus. you're going through a struggle, you know, in your life, don't lean away from God, lean into God. I mean, you think, and that's exactly what they're doing. And they were leaning into this group um, uh, this community that they had. But of course, you know, like anything, as you get into chapter 6, as 
Um, you have a large group of people, more people start coming to faith, more people means there's going to be problems. <laughs> and the first problem that the church experiences is this um, issue with the distribution of food to widows. And unfortunately, there were uh, two classes, I guess we could say, of widows, the ones that um, lived in and around Jerusalem and the ones that kind of lived on the outside. So the ones that lived in and around, we'd call the Hebraic, I think is what it says, widows. The ones who lived outside, you know, in the surrounding areas were the Grecian ones. And so the Grecian ones were being not given the daily distribution of the food like they were supposed to. And it may have just been an issue, if if I've looked at this text before, of just they were just outside of the city. It was harder to get to them physically. It might have been a practical thing, not necessarily a a theological thing or or a class division thing. Uh, But nonetheless, um, the apostles stand up and say, you know, we want to help, but we have responsibility to the word and to preaching, getting the gospel out. Let's select some fellows that can handle this. And this is where, although the word deacon never shows up in this text anywhere in the original languages, this is kind of where a lot of churches trace the idea of the office of the deacon kind of coming into, um, coming into existence and how the deacons were here, these seven, um, they came to help or to assist the apostles to kind of take the load off of them. Just like pastors today, I mean, our pastor, we know that he can't do everything. I mean, we have deacons who help, they help take some of those responsibilities off of him. Just like we as as assistant pastors do the same thing for our senior pastor. We kind of take the load off of him or help him in whatever ways he needs so he can faithfully stay in prayer and preaching of the word. Um, but one of these guys is, is the big... Um, uh, one of these guys uh, is used here in the next chapter, in chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, and his name is Stephen. And this is probably one of my favorite sections in the book of Acts um, because here's Stephen, one of these seven that was chosen. In chapter 8, Philip, another one of the seven that's chosen, will show up here just shortly. But Stephen is arrested um, because he's been arguing with the religious leaders. He's been debating them, and, and, and they're not able to win and they're upset, and they're jealous, and they're not able to win. So what do you do when you don't win? In this case, you start falsely accusing Stephen of something that, that he did not do. And I, I think it's interesting because you see that tactic today, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a mystery, especially in, in, in the digital age. You, oh, can, goodness, you yes. can carve out a soundbite of someone and pull it out of its context, and before you know it, the person is what we call canceled. Now, yes. and, and that is one of the weapons that we see even before the digital age, <laughs> in the analog age of the first century, um, and it, it in many ways is compounded. And that's today. why it's important, like we are, reading through the book of Acts, this larger section, because a lot of times you take Scripture out of context. I mean, I, I mean ideally, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, because you can take the Scriptures out of context all day long. In the digital age, it's even worse, it seems, because it gets pushed out to everyone really quickly and really fast. Well, Stephen was accused, and so Stephen decides uh, to defend himself, and he defends himself in a kind of a unique way. Um, There are uh, three major Old Testament characters that Stephen uses in his, we call Stephen's speech. And Stephen's speech is the longest speech in the book of Acts. Paul makes some speeches later on, um, defending himself before kings um, and before rulers. And there's another one later on, but this is by far the longest speech. And what Stephen does 
is he goes back and he recounts Israel's history. And I think the main issue with the speech is that he's trying to get these religious leaders to understand that there is a change in, in God's program, okay? There's a change going on here, okay? So Jesus was the Messiah, and now what is continuing in the book of Acts is connected all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when God said, you know, I'm going to send a redeemer for mankind. It's going to be Jesus. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed, not just the Jewish people. And so he goes back and he talks about Abraham. He talks about Joseph. And he spends a lot of time on Moses. I mean, these are three big fellas. And the thing of it is here is that all three of these responded to faith. They were obedient, even though their life may not have been what it was supposed to be. Uh, There's so much change, so much going on with their life. And it was such a big deal. And one of the things that you notice is that Abraham, Joseph, and Moses never got a chance to get into the promised land. All three of them, you know. Abraham didn't. I think his body was taken, buried there eventually. Joseph didn't, but his bones were carried up from Egypt. Moses, remember the sin? He never got to enter the promised land. You see, the religious leaders as well were so concerned with the actual physical terra firma space in and around Jerusalem, even today. Even today, it's such a big deal to be in the city for a Jew or, or, or around the city of Jerusalem to actually physically live there because they felt like that's the only way that God would bless someone mm-hmm. is if you're inside. And Stephen says, look, these three guys, do we have to discount these three guys? Do we have to throw away Abraham because he never got into the promised land? Or do we have to get rid of Joseph? Or do we have to get rid of Moses? And, and so he's arguing from history, showing them from history, hey, look, these are three of the big, important people in history that we trace a lot of things back as Jews. Do we have to discount them? He's exposing, I think, also a little bit of false piety among these oh, religious yes. leaders, because that was, one, that was the, the charge against him. He was blaspheming Moses and by virtue of that <laughs> blaspheming God. And it reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 23, the, the woe section, where he pronounces woes on yes. the Pharisees. One of those final woes was that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees was that with their words, they venerated those, the, those men of old, those, those patriarchs who many of them were persecuted by the Israelites and that their, their, their MO, what they, these Pharisees said, if we lived back then, we would not have, we would not have, you know, thrown Joseph in a pit and we would not, you know, we wouldn't have grumbled against Moses. But Jesus says that you're just as guilty and you will be just as guilty prophesying that they would persecute him, kill him. And now they're persecuting another one of those you know, righteous people in Stephen. So he, he's, he's in a way, I think he, he's, revealing some of that some of that false piety that Jesus had revealed earlier among and, these Pharisees. And, and he's he's um, doing a what we call a historical review of history to show how, you know, here's Abraham who responded well to when God told him, go to this land, go here, do this. Or Joseph. I mean, think of Joseph's life was turned upside down. And then what about Moses? Moses grew up for the first 40 years as an Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And then God turned his life around. And all of them were able to respond to this enormous change that they had in their life. I mean, he's Abraham, go this way. Joseph thought he was going to grow up. (laughs) He goes to (laughs) Egypt. Moses, you know, after 40 years in Egypt, God says, go back. Moses is like, no, no, I don't want to go back. So all three of these responded to this enormous change. And, and he says, 
Um, if you get to verse, uh, well, verse 44, then he talks about the tabernacle. And I think this is interesting as well, because he says in verse 44, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan that God had shown Moses. Of course, it says years later, um, when Joshua led our ancestors to battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into the new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. Because if you remember in your Old Testament, it was David who said to who said to God, I want to build you a fixed place of worship. And that's important. And of course, Solomon was the one who built it because God said, David, you cannot because you're a man of war. Solomon's a man of peace. I'll let your son Solomon built it. But until this time, the kind of original intent for God's people, if we can say that, was the tabernacle. Because, hey, the tabernacle gets picked up and it goes everywhere that God's people go. It's not fixed to one particular place. So if they were in Egypt, the tabernacle was with them. If they were in the wilderness, the tabernacle was with them. Just like today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he goes with us wherever we go. But it was David who says, I want to build you a temple. And, and God said, okay, you can do that. You can, you can build me that fixed place, that permanent place. But even though he did that, look what it says uh, in verse 46. It says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High, it says here in the text, however, the Most High doesn't live in temples made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. <laughs> no. Could you build me such a resting place? No. Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? I mean, and so he, he says, listen, the temple and the design of the temple, it's almost as if they're saying, what was, it's almost as if Stephen is saying it, it wasn't meant to be permanent. And those words, oh man, those words they didn't like. And listen to what he says here in, the, in the, his final, Stephen's final um, condemnation. He says, you stubborn people. This goes back to what Matt was saying just a minute ago. You're a heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? And that's what your ancestors did. And so did you. He says, name one of the prophets your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the righteous ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately, now watch this. This is a big verse. To me, the most important verse of this whole chapter is verse 53. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. Now, my translation says, and it gets the essence of it, you deliberately disobeyed God's law. These religious leaders were built their entire lives on correctly obeying God's law. And now Stephen says, you deliberately chose to disobey it. And they did not like that at all. That was an affront, not just to their to what they believe. That was a front to who they were. They were, mm. they were known in the community as yeah. not just the ones who kept the law, but the ones who interpreted the law and the yeah. ones who made laws about how to obey the law. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so th with that statement, it was an attack on just their very essence as, as re religious leaders and Pharisees. Um, and that, that may have been the, that was, oh, it was the final straw um, between Stephen and these religious leaders. Yeah, because it says, the very next verse, it says, then they, um, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at rage in him. And of course, Stephen, though full of the Holy Spirit, looks up into heaven, sees Jesus standing in the place of honor, and says, look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing in the place of honor. And that's a big deal. Why? Because that means that Jesus really was the Messiah, and Jesus really did die. He did uh, resurrect, and he did ascend, and now he's at the hand of the Father. Okay, So that's a big deal. 
you're wrong, he's saying to the religious leaders, because look, I see it right here in front of me, yeah. in my face. Here's <laughs> Jesus. There he is. And then it says, verse 57, they acted like kids. They put their hands over their ears. They began shouting, and they rushed at him. They don't want to hear any more of it. No, 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 I don't want to hear what you said. No, no. Brothers or sisters ever do that? You know, no, I don't. <laughs> That's exactly yep. what they do. It's interesting to see the differences between, well, first off, the similarities between Peter's sermon at Pentecost mm. and Stephen's sermon. They both, yeah. Yeah, they both pulled in the, the, the patriarchs, the prophets, yep. uh, presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the reactions, though, between the crowd at Pentecost and the religious leaders at Stephen's were so different. But it's interesting how the conclusion is similar. In Acts 2.36, it says that um, God has made him both Lord and Christ who you crucified. He mm-hmm. indicted yep. that Jewish audience yep. for crucifying him. Yep. But the reaction in chapter 2 at Pentecost, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Mm. Their heart was broken. But then the reaction in uh, in, in chapter 7 verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Mm. It's such a difference between a soft heart and a hardened heart. Yeah. Uh, people who are receptive to the gospel and people who are closed uh, to the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, and, and it may be that just time had made them more mm-hmm. callous to it. Um, but again, as Stephen ends, he says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. Acts just like Jesus did. Um, and then it introduces us to the main character that you'll find throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which is Saul. It says Saul was, was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely uh, with the killing of Stephen. And of course, that persecution of Stephen is what caused a lot of people to move out of Jerusalem. They were supposed to get out of Jerusalem to spread the gospel, but they had been kind of stationary, hadn't really gone anywhere. But this persecution of Stephen they realized we don't want this done to us. So they started to move outside. And it says a great wave of persecution, verse 1 or 2, began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. All believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the apostles stayed put in Jerusalem, and everybody else scattered throughout the area. And and the text continues on. Um, Of course, it talks about Stephen being buried. And then we're introduced to Philip. And Philip is the second of the seven. The first two that were mentioned were Stephen and Philip. And so now you pick up a little bit about what Philip does. And by the way, understand these two guys, um, Stephen and Philip, are, are, are not apostles. These guys are those seven men that were chosen. So God was doing great work through even these guys also, in, in addition to the apostles. Yeah. It's a reminder, too, the responsibility of every person Amen. to preach the gospel and share the gospel. Yeah, it would have been easy for Stephen, uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, Philip to say, well, you know, we were told to take care of the widows. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to stay in our That's lane exactly. and let the apostles preach the gospel. Um, yeah. But they didn't. You know, yeah. Even at, at the beginning of the church, there was this understanding that that great commission that Jesus gave applied to every man and woman who it's was a like, believer. It's like, this is my job, my job right. only. It reminds me of some of those, well... I would say some of those union guys, but if you're a union person, I'm sorry, I apologize. But, you know, it's like, oh, this is only my job. I can't do any other job. And that's, and a lot of church members are that way as well. Oh, no, I can't do that. This is my job, and this is all I had to do. You know, like Pastor says so many times, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. So we're introduced to Philip, and Philip is preaching in Samaria. He's having good success, and he's, he's bringing the gospel in, and it says that many are accepting, okay, in the area of Samaria. Remember, the area of Samaria is a place that he didn't like to go. Okay. And one of the guys that was there that was already powerful and influential was the man called Simon the Sorcerer. And he had been there for several years. But now the people were beginning to listen to Philip's message. And as a result, guess what? <laughs> Simon changes. He accepts uh, 
he accepts Philip's message. He believes and was baptized, and then he began following Philip wherever he went. Now, all of this commotion kind of stirs the apostles in Jerusalem. It says they heard that the people in in Samaria, not in America, (laughs) in Samaria had accepted God's message. So they sent Peter and John there. See, because as far as time is going right now, the gospel has been in Jerusalem and has mainly been being preached to a Jewish audience. And now it's slowly getting out to another audience, which is the Samaritans. And it and, took persecution to drive, yeah, exactly. drive the people exactly. out. Exactly. And so as it comes yeah. to the Samaritans, now Peter and John have to come to kind of quote-unquote approve, I guess we might say, the gospel going to the Samaritans. Now, God already approved that long ago when he said the gospel is going to go to all nations. But for whatever reason, John and Peter here kind of have to come give their approval on it. And what it says here, it's interesting, this is kind of like a mini Pentecost in this little section. Actually, sometimes we term it the Samaritan Pentecost. Okay, Again, this is an illustration of a descriptive thing. It happens. Uh, there's no prescriptive thing. We shouldn't go do this today. It doesn't say go and do that. Well, likewise, it just tells us it happens. And I think it's just unique because it says that uh, as soon as they arrived, uh, Peter and John prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like this is what happened at Pentecost, remember? But Pentecost was focused more on the Jewish people that were there. This is more focused on a Gentile audience or the Samaritan audience that is there. But, but that's kind of not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that when Simon, who was newly saved, this magician, saw what Peter and John had did, he was like, I want that. I want to buy that. I want to buy that ability. That's where the term simony comes from, the, the um, old... Uh, I don't think it's still practiced today, but the Catholic uh, practice of buying a church office, simony, is where it comes from. Uh, it comes from this, uh, actually they trace it back to this text, and he says, I want to buy that, like I want to get that. Um, and of course, Peter says, you know, you can't buy this. Um, and, 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 you know, here's Simon, and here's a great example, I think, of, you know, a believer who, who has led a really a life that's been opposite of Christ, and now he's accepted Christ, and he still finds his, himself kind of reverting back to some of his old ways. I mean, it's hard. You know, if you come out of a, of a horrible life, sometimes it's hard to make that 180-degree turn. It, it takes time. There's a transition period. It just doesn't happen naturally. And I think here's a great example with Simon, um, who wants to change, and he does change, but then he gets reverts back into his old habits, thinking that, hey, I can buy this, and I can become an even better magician. Um, if I can buy this, but he doesn't realize. And of course, um, kudos to Peter for setting him straight. Yeah, and it, <laughs> to give Simon a little credit, maybe, yeah, yeah. He, they didn't have the completed Word of God. Uh, they didn't point. have the, yeah, yeah, the, the teachings of Jesus, <laughs> right. the New Testament, the epistles. So he, he had probably only heard the gospel of Jesus. He knew nothing about the, the, the receiving of the, the, mm. the the indwelling and the filling yeah, of the Holy Spirit—it was all—it was all new to him. So, so thankfully, you, there there were the Pe- there were the Peters and 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 those who came and instructed him. Um, and, and as a result, before come back to Philip, it says Peter just to show you that they approved in verse twenty-five. It says Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. They didn't do that before, but they did it after, just to show that now the gospel is going to the Samaritans. But but then we jump to Philip, and Philip has a specific task 
that, that God wanted Philip to do. Uh, it's funny how Philip was preaching to lots of people and believers. He has good success, and then God says, wait a minute, I have a divine appointment for you. I want you to go. And it says, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south and go meet this Ethiopian. Uh, and it's a classic story of, you know, this Ethiopian was trying to seek out and understand more about God, okay? And God responded to that and sent Philip to him as a result. So a lot of times today when people are trying to seek out God and seek out his message and not understand it, God is sending people. It's a great example to them. And of course, this Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah 53. Uh, and Isaiah 53, he says, I can't understand this. And Philip goes over and says, let me explain. And the good thing about this is that Philip explains this in terms of this is Jesus. And if there's any uh, New Testament uh, interpretation of Isaiah 53 or what I'm saying is that this is a big deal for understanding Isaiah 53 because if Philip interprets it as Jesus and he's a lot closer to Jesus than we were, then I think that's something we take back to Isaiah 53 with. Absolutely. There's, there's no reason. Scripture interpreting Scripture. The greatest interpreter of the Old Testament is the New Testament. And uh, you see that right here. And it's, it's int- I, I think it's interesting, the questions. This this. This mm-hmm. eunuch had, he, I, I have <laughs> lots of questions. There were three very important ones I underlined in verse 31. He says, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? So it reminds us of, of the need for those of, you know, those of us who have been you know, watching the Rooted Podcast, you're listening, <laughs> you're getting into the, yeah. in the Word, that we, we have a responsibility to share with others you know, what we've learned and, and help them understand. And then he says, he, and then he asks Philip in verse 34, uh, is, is, is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? So he's asking, mm. who is this referring to? A golden opportunity to point this Ethiopian exactly. eunuch to Jesus. And then after the Ethiopian eunuch, he's, he's ready to receive Jesus. He puts his faith in Jesus. The final question is a great one. He says, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? It's, uh, it's almost like you know, Philip walks into this perfect scenario yeah. where he's asking the right questions, and uh, it, it's, it's very interesting. It's also interesting to notice the sequence there. You have his, him putting his faith in Christ, and then you have, you have, you have the baptism. So yeah. you can see that baptism does not save you. It's a reflection of, of what you believe about Jesus. It's, it's every church or every pastor or evangelist dream. You just walk right in, and everything's ready to go. Now, we don't have much time, but I do want to get to chapter 9 because there's a specific part of chapter 9 I want to talk about. And it's actually not about Saul. Saul's conversion happens in chapter 9. And, of course, that Saul is going to Damascus. He's got letters from the high priest to pull any Christians he wants, drag them out of the city of Damascus and cart them back to Jerusalem, put them in chains because they are uh, followers of Christianity. He gets those letters. And, of course, on the way, Jesus appears to him um, on the road to Damascus. He's blind. Uh, Saul is blinded by the light. He's got to go um, to Damascus, and he is supposed to wait for a man named Ananias. Of course, also you think about it, Saul didn't know. It says he's going to be blind for three days. Saul didn't know how long he was going to be blind for. Again, he, doesn't, he didn't have the text. He didn't have it, so he couldn't look back on it. So he doesn't know how long he's going to be there for. And then God appears to Ananias, telling Ananias, go to see Saul and help. Uh, I'm going to use you to, to, to um, heal Saul or to to, to heal his sight. And of course, Ananias is like, I love where it says verse 11. He says, but Lord, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but he goes nonetheless. And as a result, he goes and, and Saul's healed. It says he, he gets his sight back. And then immediately Saul says, okay, let's turn around like Simon. Remember Simon's mm-hmm. turn around mm-hmm. and, and let's start serving Jesus. Let's start 
preaching and, and they don't like it. In Damascus, he doesn't get a good report. And so they got to take him outside the city and, and uh, put him in a, I think it's a basket and lower him down outside so that they won't kill him. So he goes to Jerusalem, okay? And that's where you pick up in verse 26. And when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they all were afraid of him. <laughs> I would be too. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. This is verse 27. Then Barnabas, here's Barnabas again, brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He told them Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now watch what verse 28 says. So Saul stayed with all the apostles and went around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to think about Barnabas. Think about what kind of influence this man had when he was able to convince all of these apostles that Saul is safe now. Saul is okay. This man probably had more pull than even Peter and John and some of the more well-known ones. I mean, for him to just say, hey, it's okay. And then they take Paul on a preaching or Saul on a preaching journey with him around Jerusalem. So it's not just, hey, okay, we'll be your friend. But no, come with us and preach around the streets of Jerusalem. I mean, that is some strong, strong influence. And sometimes we don't look at Barnabas that way. He shows up several times throughout the book of Acts. But I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Barnabas, we would never, never know about Saul. We'd never know about Saul. But of course, as he begins to preach um, more ruckus in Jerusalem, they know <laughs> Saul, they know his reputation, so they take him and send him away back to his hometown. And then I love what verse 31 says, then the church had peace <laughs> throughout <laughs> Judea. You know, it wasn't time yet for Saul. God has a time, God has a, a place for everything. And Saul thought, hey, this is a good time. I've just come out of following the wrong way. Hey, I'm a great example to those in my place. Maybe I can pull them back and win them back, but it just isn't time. And, it, and I think it's so true when you might be hurt by someone or might have a wrong. Yeah, you might be able to forgive the person, but it takes time. Mm -hmm. It takes time to, to, to come back to a place where you can fully trust and you may not ever be able to fully trust. But think about what Barnabas did here. He was able to fill with the power and the spirit of the Lord. He was able to convince the 12 apostles who had been persecuted by, <laughs> by Saul. He was going to say, hey, it's okay. This is all part of God's plan. And for the apostles to accept that, I'm telling you, Barnabas is one of the most un, uh, one of the, one of the um, what do you call that? One of the unsung heroes, or he's the um, underdog, you might say. He's not one that you'd see as, as a main player. We all talk about Paul and Peter and John, but I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Barnabas, he does so much here to kind of unify things. And I wonder what the motivation was for Barnabas to almost, you could say, stick his neck out for yeah. the Apostle Paul. You think it has to be, at some level, his trust in the life-changing power of the gospel. Amen. He, Amen had, yeah, he had to believe that, that even someone as, quote-unquote, lost and as as vile as the as as Paul could be as Saul could be transformed by the gospel, even given a new name, a new ministry. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a good reminder for us. Some of the people that maybe the you know, they're the burrs in our saddles, yeah. and they're the ones that you know, we we see maybe as Christians as enemies of the faith. Um, you think about militant atheist people that are you know pushing a you know, progressive agenda. Mm, yeah. you know, they could be the next. Apostle Paul. Yeah, I mean, and and wow, it's, it's, it just kind of goes to show us that really the main player here is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
um, and the Holy Spirit is getting the gospel out. And the Holy Spirit is one that's convicting. The Holy Spirit is one that's doing the work, and, and we just have to be sensitive uh, to the Spirit. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I think we're out of time as as I'm getting shaken. Yes, from as the per camera. usual, as right. per usual. Yeah. <laughs> so next time we'll pick up um, in verse 32 of chapter nine. We'll pick up with Peter. And, and we'll start tracing a little bit of Peter's ministry, and, and, and he has some more visions and dreams as well, as the rest of them did. So, uh, again, um, we'll pick up next week with Peter. That's all for this week. If you have any questions, don't forget to send them to BibleReading at lmbc.org. And if we get those questions, we might be able to answer some of them if it relates to our content here on air. Uh, but if not, we'll send back replies and different things like that. So uh, do that for me, and we'll see you guys next time.